So my guest today is Susan Kane, and she is the author of four best-selling books, including Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking, which was one of the first books written on being an introvert. The book spent seven years on the New York's bestsellers list and has been translated into over 40 languages, which is incredible. And her latest book is called Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Now, the reason I knew I needed to invite Susan on this podcast is I felt like a lone voice for over 10 years talking about sorrow and joy being deeply connected. I discuss it widely in my four books, how unless you embrace pain and sadness, you'll never be able to experience deep, heartfelt joy. And I've always explained my transformation on the other side of loss like this, that the pain and the grief and heartbreak chiseled gigantic valleys in my soul, deeper than I ever thought possible. And for a time, those valleys were full of pain, tears and sadness. But as I journeyed through grief, the valleys started to fill up with joy, peace, happiness and hope. And I found my capacity for these beautiful gifts was way larger. And I realised that That was solely due to the valleys being born from pain and being so deep. And that awakened me to the synergy of those emotions and feelings. I'm now only this happy, this hope-filled because of my journey through loss. And that makes me not afraid to talk about the pain. And it's helped me see that I'm not defined by my losses I've encountered, but I have been refined by them. So, Susan... Let's start maybe with you sharing some of your story and how you got to this place to, and the heart to share the story of bittersweetness. Well, I have been acutely aware of this my whole life. Um, I almost don't know where it comes from. Um, I mean, I could tell you different stories of of loss that are part of my family. I, I come from a family where we kind of have an intergenerational history of loss. And, and so I think that, um, you know, I, I just kind of grew up in an environment that was suffused with that. Um, my On both sides of my family, um, both both of my grandparents had basically lost everyone they'd ever known and loved um, in the Holocaust. And so I just grew up in that environment where that was very much a part of what reality was. And, um, and so I would, all my life I've kind of looked at, you know, particularly in America, there's, there's such a feeling or there was until a couple of years ago, such a feeling of like, you know, everything's great, smiley face on all the time. And I, and I just felt like that was, it just wasn't true. Like I, I, I was just sort of aware of an underlying precarity to things and underlying fragility that I thought had to be part of the whole equation, right? That's so interesting. So interesting. So did everybody in your family talk about loss regularly or was it because it's been such a big part of their story that was actually a closed book that wasn't open very often? I can't say it wasn't a closed book. Um, you do hear of families of, um, who'd been touched by the Holocaust where like, you just never speak of that again. There's a kind of unspoken pact. It wasn't like that at all. Um, it wasn't like we talked about it all the time. It was just part of the air that I breathed. It was just like, this is what life is. Um, and these are the stories. This is our family history. Like even right now, I'm sitting in my my office as we talk, and I don't know if you can see it, but right over there, there's um, there's a, a 
black and white photograph taken of my relatives who I never met, um, uh, you know, in Europe, I think in the 1920s. And like, I grew up staring at that photograph and wondering who those people were and, and what became of them. So that was just the air that I breathed. So tell me how you became a writer. Tell me your story of getting to the point of telling stories. I wanted to be a writer from the time I was four years old. Um, and I think it really came from, I fell in love with books, you know, from an early age. I, I also came from a family where books were everything, you know, um, my siblings were much older and were reading all the time. So that was like, to me, the, the thing that, you know, I, I was aspiring to, and I fell in love with books from the moment I read them. And, and I think that, uh, when you fall in love with something that you find really beautiful, you, you then want to become a part of it. You want to be, you want to become a part of creating the thing that you find beautiful. Um, so I just started writing myself from the time I was very, very little. My mother taught me to read and write very young and that's what I was doing. I, like I was writing stories and, um, uh, you know, creating magazines. I would sit under a table in the family den and I called it my workshop <laughs> and, um, and yeah, that's what I was always doing. That's amazing. So did you only do this professionally or did you have another job before? Oh, well, I mean, yeah. So I did all that like when I was a kid and always dreamed of being a writer. But then um, then when I got to be, I don't know, college age, um, my father, who had grown up during the Depression, um, uh you know, very difficult to make ends meet. My, my father sat me down and he said, you know, it's very romantic to want to be a writer when you're 15 or 16. Um, but when you're 35 and you can't really pay the bills, it won't, it might not feel so romantic at that point. And at the time he said it, I was kind of fiercely protesting, but after, you know, he, he walked away and I, like, and I thought, oh, you know, he might be right. So I ended up going to law school and practicing corporate law for almost a decade. Um, very different from being a writer. <laughs> very, very different. And I always felt I was like, I felt like those years in law that I was living in a different country, but I enjoyed that. You know, it, it felt like I had learned to speak another language that was not my own and learned the the cultural mores of a culture that wasn't my own. Um, but I got a kick out of it. And, um, and I, I don't know, after it, I was working like a maniac, there were moments that were difficult about it, but um, I might have stuck with it, except that in the end, I didn't make partner. And, um, and in the wake of that, I, I ended up taking just like on the, on the spot, a leave of absence. And literally I was like 12 hours into this leave of absence when I started writing again. And at that point I had not been writing for over a decade. I'd kind of forgotten about it and dismissed that as the dreams of youth. And like, I didn't think it was real, but it all came rushing back the moment that I had space for it. Wow. And what did you start writing about in that immediate aftermath? I was just writing everything. Um, I signed up for a class in creative nonfiction, but I, I wrote a memoir in sonnet form. <laughs> I wrote another memoir in prose form. I wrote plays, uh, poetry. I did everything. Um, and it was a few years before I started writing Quiet, which is, was my first book that ended up um, really 
getting out there. Um, yeah, but even when I started working on Quiet, I thought that I was working on another idiosyncratic project, like my memoir and sonnets. Um, I didn't really understand when I was writing it how many people it was going to speak to. I thought it was just like a, you know, just sort of a side thing that I was interested in. When did you realize that that book was going to change a lot of people's lives, that it had become, you know, the book that they would wave and say, I've finally been understood? At what moment did that hit you? Well, it started, I would say, when I first started looking, I first started looking for a literary agent to represent me. And um, my agent, who's still my agent now, dear Richard Pine at Inkwell Management, he took me around to all the different publishing houses and they all kind of went crazy um, because, of course, publishing houses are populated by introverts. You know, they're quiet book, book reading people. That's so so they were all like, oh my gosh, I have to have this book. Um, and there was a big auction for it. And, you know, so it was kind of a Cinderella moment for me of like, I, I had never really thought I was ever going to make it as a writer. I just thought of that as like a, a gauzy dream that I had. And all of a sudden, <laughs> there are all these people bidding for this book. So that was kind of incredible. Yeah, so incredible. And I think what scared me the most about writing was after my first book was a success, the pressure to write a good mm. second book. Did you feel that pressure that it felt like the first book, you've got all this freedom and creative space because the expectation isn't there. But after that first success, it can be really hard to put pen to paper again, can't yeah, it? Well, I mean, I didn't find that when, like, I, after Quiet, I wrote another book, Quiet Power, and that was for teenagers. So I didn't, I didn't feel it with that one. But with Bittersweet, this book that just came out now, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole, um, I did feel that some of the time, of course, like you can't, I, I, I don't know how anyone could not feel that. Um, but I will say at the same time that I just love so much the whole creative process and like sitting down every morning with my latte and my candle, which is right here. And like, um, just the whole thing I love. So I tried to focus on that, um, and on what it was that I wanted to say and share and connect around and, I have a kind of philosophy about writing, which it actually comes from, there's a, a Jewish saying that if you've saved one life, you've saved the whole world. And I extrapolate that to writing that like, if you've connected with one reader, you've connected with, with the world. So like just that one connection is the most amazing thing. Um, you know, that moment, we, we all know it as readers, that moment where a writer articulates something that we've always felt but never quite expressed in that particular way. I, to me, that's a very sacred moment. Um, and I just wanted to, I, I love creating those moments. So if I can create them with like a gazillion people, all the better. But even if it's one, that's good. I love that. That's so beautiful and so true. So with this book, was it always burning away as something you knew you wanted to write? Or is it something that along the journey you discovered that there was a need to explore this topic? So the book started with a burning question I have had all my life. Um, I'm not sure when I knew the question was going to become a book, but the question was, why did I and so many other people have such an intense and intensely positive reaction to sad and minor key music. Um, the feeling that 
we often get when we hear that kind of music, it feels like a kind of transcendence, you know, and it's a kind of, you feel a kind of love for the musician, for having the courage to express themselves so honestly and their ability to transform what clearly began in pain into beauty. Um, and all of that, I wanted to understand what that was all about. And, um, and so at first it just was this question about sad music and what that was, but it quickly became, or not so quickly, but anyway, it became, um, it became an almost decade long quest for me into exploring the bittersweet tradition, which you see in all our religions, all our wisdom traditions, um, our artistic and literary heritage. It's like for thousands of years and across continents, our artists and writers and theologians have been telling us that creativity and connection come out of this place where, jo where joy and sorrow meet. Um, and, and once I understood that, uh, like I, of course, <laughs> wanted to share the news everywhere. Yeah. And I think for anybody who's always felt that, but not had that ability to put words to it, that's where this book is magic, where it's suddenly giving them a key to explain something that they've always known, but not quite verbalized. I know for me, where I've always had this love of music that makes me feel so deeply. Mm -hmm. And there's a I guess there's always a part of you that's holding back from almost admitting that because you don't want people to think you're a depressive type. The fact that you love to just sit with sadness and and um, and waste away the hours of tears pouring down your face because the music has caused you to think so deeply. But for me, I've never been afraid of that. I've always been, no, this is how you make your soul sing by experiencing it all. But you know what? I didn't know it was a thing. I didn't know it was something that so many people also felt. And that's why finding like-minded people like yourself, you go, oh my goodness, there's more of us in the world. And when you start talking about it, you hear so many more people who feel exactly the so same. So many people. Yes. I, I can't tell you. I mean, so the book came out in the US um, a few weeks ahead of the UK. So it's been out now for like, I don't know, a week or so. Um, and already like all these letters flooding in saying, oh my gosh, I feel so understood for the first time. And I thought I was the only one who experienced this. Um, and the thing that you said about you don't want people to think you're a depressive type. Yeah. I mean, I, so I actually gave a TED talk about bittersweetness and I gave it in the summer of 2019. Um, so it was the summer before the pandemic and, and then Ted very graciously agreed to hold it until the book came out. So it only just came out now. But um, when I gave the talk, as I say, it was before the pandemic. So it was before you know, regular people were kind of thinking about these topics. And I could see that half the audience reacted the way you just did. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I understood. And then, and half the audience, like I came off stage and they were like, oh, I didn't know you were depressed. And, and I'm actually really not. I, I think of myself as a happy melancholic. Like I definitely have a melancholic temperament, but I'm not clinically depressed. Um, and the fact that we can't even make a distinction between those two states and that mainstream psychology doesn't even have a way to, to talk about the distinction between these two states, which are, they're certainly cousins of each other, but they're also completely different. Um, 
Absolutely. Yeah. We, we need to figure that one out. So I've been telling all my psychologist friends, we need to work on that one. So for those who haven't yet read the book, describe to us what bitter sweetness is um, for those who haven't yet read the book. Sure. Um, so I'll describe it. And then um, we also developed a bittersweet quiz that helps people kind of assess um, how prone they are to these states. Um, and so I'll give you a few questions from the bittersweet quiz too. Um, but just to sort of define the idea, it's it's a kind of, um, it's, a, it's an awareness of the way that joy and sorrow and light and dark are forever paired. Um, it, it's an awareness of passing time and of our underlying fragility. Um, and it's also, and with that comes, and I know you know this, Zoe, um, it's the way that with all of that awareness comes a kind of piercing joy at the beauty of the world and the fact that it's all connected somehow. Um, I'm going to give you a few questions from the quiz. I developed this quiz together with uh, the psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman and David Yaden. So we did some interesting sort of data crunching on it, which I'll tell you about. Um, so a few questions. One would be, do you draw comfort or inspiration from a rainy day? Yeah, absolutely. I certainly do. And I think many people will as well. The fact that every day doesn't have to be glorious and shiny. I mean, that's actually, even as I was saying the question, I'm wondering if that question plays differently in the UK where you have so much rain. Because like, even for me, I, I don't like it when it rains day after day after day. I just like it occasionally. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, well, we're just used to it. We kind of yeah, ready for yeah, it. You, I don't know if it brings the same sense of sort of tea and coziness that it does um, in the US where it's a little less regular. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, funny, yeah. So, okay, I'll give you some more. Um, do you react intensely to art, music, or nature? Yeah, I certainly do in the fact that I'm all in there. I'm definitely not a person that puts my toe in the water. I'm diving there and experience it all, fully immerse myself. <laughs> um, and here's another one for you. Um, have others referred to you as a, quote, old soul? Oh, absolutely. Even from a child where um, I expressed myself completely and probably would be classed as very dramatic <laughs> at some points because I always had a million words to describe everything. Well, there you go. And so there's a whole bunch of questions like that that you can take. And um, and then you, like, you tally up your score. And what we have found is that people who score high on this quiz, which means just that you're prone to the estates of bittersweetness, um, that that, that those people also tend to score high on something called absorption, which is a state that that predicts creativity, and score high on states of awe and wonder and transcendence. Um, and then, because all good things contain their bad thing, in, in my opinion, um, people who score high in bittersweetness also have a mild correlation with states of anxiety and depression. So, which isn't really surprising if you think about it, because as I say, I, I, I think these states are cousins of each other. Yeah. Um, and maybe it's a difference of degree as opposed to a difference of kind. Um, it's a little hard to know, but, uh, but anyway, that's kind of the, um, that's the sort of overview. And, and for some people, they seem to be born with what you might call a bittersweet predisposition. And for other people, they come to it as you know, through life experience. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you've found this with so many of the people 
who you've worked with over the years, like you, you, you can kind of enter your life without thinking about these things so much. But once you've experienced a whole number of life's trials and triumphs, it, that can have a way of shifting you and your, per- your perceptions. Absolutely. Have you found through your research that certain personality types are more likely to experience this than others, i.e. are introverts more likely to experience it than extroverts? Well, interestingly, we did not find a correlation with introversion or extroversion, but the correlation we found, and it was a high one, was with Elaine Aaron's um, idea of the highly sensitive person. Um, and this is a type of person who it, it, it's about 15 to 20% of the population. Um, and these are people who they, they, they react more to everything. Um, so whether it's a beautiful sunset or, you know, the screeching sound of a construction zone outside your window, if you're a sensitive person, you're going to tend to respond to those stimuli that much more, um, intensely. And that seems to go along with with this awareness of bittersweetness. That's really interesting. And I know one of the things in your book, which I'm really keen to explore here, is the notion that, and I'm a big believer in this, that you can turn your pain into something really Mm -hmm. beautiful. And it's something that I was really resistant to for quite a long time after going through repeated loss. And I think that was because I was almost scared to turn it into something beautiful or even helpful for fear that others would think it was all worth it, that there'd been this some sort of divine exchange of the suffering and people would go, see, it was all worth it. And I didn't want the babies that I had lost and the people I had lost um, to ever for me to ever feel that their deaths were somewhat justified in some way. So I was kind of resistant to turning it into something beautiful. And I now know through the work I do, so many bereaved parents feel exactly the same, that they are almost, and in the aftermath of the loss connected to their loved one or their baby, their child through the pain. And it takes a while for you before you realize actually it's the love that connects mm-hmm. you, not the pain. And so to see anything good coming from it almost feels like a betrayal yeah. of those that you've lost. So I'm really interested to hear you talk on how you feel pain can be turned into something beautiful. And maybe if there's any tips that you can give to people who do want that because they want their loved ones, perhaps legacy to be one of beauty rather than of tears. And I know that's the point I ended up Mm -hmm. at. Um, But for many people, that's something I get asked about. Oh, goodness knows how many times a week. How do I turn that? So I'd be really interested to hear your take on that. Yeah, this is something that I've thought about many, obviously I've thought about this all these years that I've been writing the book, but specifically the question of like, if it's true that you can transform pain into beauty, is that, as you're saying in your question, is is that saying that there's something good about pain? Um, And I don't, this is my, this is my personal place where I've ended up on this question. I don't think there is. Um, I mean, probably if if I could wave a magic wand and wave away all these losses and all these pains that humans have endured and continue to over the centuries, I would do it despite the, um, despite the beauty on the other side, but I'm responding to the world that we have and to the losses that we have, um, 
despite all our best efforts not to endure them. Um, this is, this is the world we have. We don't exactly understand why, but it is. And in this world, it seems to me that we have two choices when pain and loss come. Um, and one choice is to not really fully come to grips with it. And, and then it has a way of us taking it out on ourselves or on other people. Um, or we have the choice of, of encountering it in whatever way we're able to and trying to transform it then into beauty. And you see people doing this in a hundred different ways, you know, and for some people it's kind of the classical artistic response of, you know, compose a song, you know, make a painting, whatever it is. Um, for other people, there's the, the archetype that's also been with us for thousands of years of the wounded healer um, who has endured this wound, but then is endowed and with healing capacities to heal others of a similar type of wound. Um, so I believe that's our best pathway given the world that we have. Um, it's not in any way to validate the losses. It's quite the opposite. And do you have tips for people who want to turn their pain into something beautiful? Have you discovered through your research even any formulas that helps people do it? I'm guessing there's no fast pass. There's no way of, as you say, this magic wand, but are there any things that people can do to help the process? Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is to not ask yourself to have to do that anytime soon. Um, you know, you are where you are. The only thing I, there is to just be aware of, are you starting unbeknownst to yourself to venture down that path of taking it out on yourself or on others? And, and then you want to come off of that path. Um, I think people know it when they've been grieving. They, they know when they're suddenly ready to come out a little bit again. Um, and and I think identifying the kind of grief or the kind of loss that you've endured and deciding whether it's helpful for you, like in exactly the way that you're doing. I mean, you're you're the perfect example, right, of a wounded healer. Like you've created a whole organization um, and a whole body of work um, around helping people through the precise losses that you have endured. That can be really useful, but I do want people to know, like you don't have to do it on the on the wonderful scale that you've happened to choose. I mean, you, you could do it through simply offering understanding words to a friend or to somebody who you've met, who's going through the same thing. Like it could be one-on-one, -on -one, it can be done beautiful things in small steps um, in small quantities. Um, so I really do want to stress that. Yeah, absolutely. I am constantly saying that to people as well. The fact that you don't have to do anything on this big platform or this big way. And that doesn't mean that person loved their baby or their loved one more because they've done something like raised a lot of money in honor to help a local hospital, for instance. That doesn't mean they love their, um, the person they've lost more than somebody who doesn't do a fundraising, um, effort. And I think, because there's so much shame connected to grief and loss, 
people often feel that if they have done something substantial, then that almost permits them to talk about their loss and their grief journey, where maybe if they haven't done so, that they don't feel that they've almost bought that right. And I'm really keen and I'm constantly trying to work at breaking down that, the fact that everybody has a right to continually talk about their loved one. And um, because somebody does something with their pain doesn't mean that they love their person the person they've lost any more than the next person who quietly maybe just journals about their love of their loved one, that um, it's not a measure of anything. It's just what people feel called to do. Very, very, yes, that is such, it's such an important point. And some of this is personality that has nothing to do with the underlying grief itself or the underlying love. It's just one person expresses themselves through, you know, creating an organization and another person through a much more quiet act. That that probably had more to do with your underlying personality than anything else. Um, I also wanted to say, like in terms of the idea of transforming beauty into art, it doesn't actually have to be art that you create yourself. It can actually be just the act of immersing yourself in art or in, in that which you find beautiful. And, and we actually know this from studies that um, that, that the very act of, of consuming art or participating in the artistic process as an observer or as a listener in the case of music, that's that's incredibly elevating to the soul as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say to decouple as much as possible the, um, the healing from grief with our societal tendency that tells us we have to be seeking success and glory in all things. Like don't, don't let your grief get... Um, get bound up in that pressure to be doing something worthy of, of, of accolades. That's not the point at all. You know? Yeah, I agree. It's just so important that people honor their loss and give themselves time and space to process their grief without any external pressure or, or pressure from themselves. Grieving is just such a personal and sacred passage And no one's journey is the same. It's as unique as our fingerprints. And I think we also need to respect the power of grief and acknowledge the huge impact it can have on people's lives. Often losing a person, whether that be a long-fall baby or any other loved one, can be the first domino that falls and many other things can then be affected on from that. So whether that be relationships, careers, etc., I was really shocked to hear that around 70% of relationships break down following baby loss. And I really believe people not being offered support or being given space to grieve is majorly responsible for that stat. So good support and journeying with people on their grief marathon is extremely valuable. And knowing that people will survive the aftermath of loss in their own personal way is just essential. Mm -hmm. One of the um, people who I interviewed for the book, she's actually the, um, my sister's sister-in-law. Her name is Lois, and she's become uh, it, we, we've become very close over the years. Um, and she lost her grown daughter to ovarian cancer. Um, and we talked a lot about the process of her grief. And she said that for her, 
the grief was actually made worse by the fact that that she, Lois, is by nature such an optimistic and cheerful person. She's actually not a bittersweet type at all. Um, and And so through all the years of her daughter's illness, she never really believed that that her daughter's life would end, that she would die. Like she, she thought she'd always be able to um, come through it. And therefore when she lost her, it hit her that much harder because she really wasn't prepared at all. Um, And so she, although, as I say, she is by nature, like an incredibly upbeat person. She really descended for, it was probably a good two or three years. She didn't really come out of her house. And she said she made like a a shrine to to her daughter all over her house pictures like you know um, hung up at odd angles um all over the place and um and she said that for her what one of the things that helped her to come out was realizing that she did have i mean she had other children grandchildren her husband who she loved dearly and and they needed her and she didn't want to send them the signal that their lives didn't matter, that that the, the, her relationships with them didn't matter. So that was part of what drew her out. Um, and, and she said she came across a metaphor, which was really useful for her, um, of a broken mirror. And so she said, like, her life now, there's always going to be a crack in that mirror. But but if you look at it, you can still you can still see in the mirror and and. And she still does get a lot of joy from life. Um, yeah. And and what she talks about all the time is wanting to talk about her daughter in normal ways. And I think that is one of the things that people who aren't going through grief um, often have trouble with. They, like they think it's better to avoid the topic of the missing person as opposed to just engaging with it as part of, as part of life, you know, mentioning the person um, just the way you would if they were still alive. Yeah, so true. And and I think some of that is actually why people who lose babies in pregnancy or at birth find it as challenging as they do as well, because the people don't have those memories to talk about with you. I, They're kind I, of all of those memories you've created are between you and your bump. And maybe the people that live in your household have those connections too, because they've journeyed with you on a really intimate level, sharing the same space. But for many people, when they've never known that person or never had any contact with that person, what do they talk about? What do they share about? And when it comes to baby loss, people assume it's all pain and all heartbreak. I mean, if you birth a baby who is born still, I think most people will tell you all they get is um, condolence cards and mentions of the heartbreak, but often an avoidance of the subject altogether. But if they do, they never ask you the stories about the joys when you were pregnant or the moments when you had scans or or even the beauty in the birth, in the fact that you've still got a birth story. Everybody thinks that it's just all sorrow, that there's no joy, even in that most painful of moment or in, in the pregnancy at all. And actually, all of those moments are so filled with joy and pain that bereaved parents want to talk about them. And even if they are all filled with pain, they want to talk about them, but they especially want to make people aware that there is so much joy and beauty in it. And um, 
they don't want their babies just to be remembered with tears. They want to be able to say, look at the impact they had on my life. Look at the impact they've had on the world because of me being willing to talk about them and share about them. And I think that's where your book really beautifully um, shares that there's all of these moments and there's beauty within them. And I think that's the real you know, there's no better word than it's bittersweet in that moment when you don't get to bring your baby home, but you're just so grateful that they ever got to have any sort of life, whether it be in utero or outside of the womb. The fact that there is still beauty in them being here at all. Yeah, yeah. And and I think it's very, it's very important for people going through a baby loss in particular, I would think, to to really be able to talk about it because it would be it would be so easy for it never to be spoken of again um, because, well, because of what you're saying, that other people didn't know that baby. Um, I'll tell you, I, I actually had that experience in my own family growing up. Um, it turns out that my mother had had a baby who had died very shortly after birth. Um, this would have been an older sibling to me before I was born. And I never knew about this. Like it was never, ever spoken of until, um, well, I write, I write in the book a great length about the, the, the very difficult relationship that I had with my mother and the the losses involved with it. And when our difficulties began and we started, um, interacting with each other in these very stormy and painful ways. It was only then that my mother told me about that baby. It, there was some, somehow there was something about um, the fact of us being caught in an emotional uh, hurricane that made those memories come up and made her start to speak of, of that baby again. I had never known until then. Wow. And how powerful is that? And, you know, I think so many of us have those stories in our family and in the generations where there was a time where we just didn't talk about these things and we especially didn't talk about baby loss. And and I don't know whether that's because there was so much death and loss anyway, and so many children didn't survive until their 12th birthday. The fact that, um, loss just wasn't, I don't know, I don't know what, what it is, whether it just wasn't taken as seriously when it was in the womb because people had so many later losses or I don't know what it was that made people think that this was a subject they shouldn't talk about. But I know through the work of our charity, we have so many elderly people who now attend the remembrance services that we hold, people in their 80s and 90s who come along and say, I was never permitted to speak about it. It was literally a taboo that we just don't go there and we don't talk about it. And it's only now I feel like I can grieve and actually mourn for that life that was lost 70 years ago at times. And now they feel in a place that they can finally talk about it. I wonder what you think of the idea that I write about um, in Bittersweet. Um, It's a kind of concept of how to think about grieving and mourning. And the idea is to distinguish, it it comes from Nora McInerney, um, and she distinguishes between moving on and moving forward. And she talks about how in our culture, um, in, in the modern West, there's so much emphasis on, you know, move on, like get, no one says to a grieving person, get over it, but they find nicer ways to say it, right? Like, like yeah. yeah. Um, so, so people feel this internal pressure to move on. 
And she says, instead of moving on, that's no good. But what you can do is move forward, meaning you you continue with your life, but you're still carrying the the person who you've lost. You're carrying them with you. So it's not that you're leaving them behind, but it's also not that you're staying stagnant and you, you don't have to stay forever in the place you were where you lost them. You can go forward and carry them with you. And I, I find that to be very a very liberating way to think about it. Yes, so true. In my books, Saying Goodbye and The Baby Loss Guide, I talk about something truly precious, something that's kind of magical. And that is when a woman carries a baby within her, fetal cells actually transfer into the mother. And even if the child sadly, tragically passes away, these cells remain in the mother. Now, of course, this also means that cells then can transfer into siblings and cross multiple generations. And research has shown these cells can be found in mother's bloodstreams and in all major organs, even in the mother's beating heart. And it's called microchimerism. So when a mother says, I will always carry my baby in my heart and body, that isn't just a nice thought. It's a physical fact. So all five of my babies that have run on ahead are still physically within me. And I literally live my life for me and for them too, which I just think is so utterly beautiful. Beautiful. 